1: Alrighty, hello and welcome to the DealMaker show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that uh, was born in Startup Nation, uh, but we're going to be talking about building and scaling here. You know, there's a really exciting uh, podcast, you know, episode that we have in front of us. We're going to be talking about how they actually turn their business, their venture business, you know, pretty much, you know, into profitability. How they think about people and then also retention, as well as doing the hard work, you know, and some of the stuff that they learn from outsourcing, some of the things that they were doing. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Ron Resky. welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very excited.
1: So originally born in Israel, but you moved quite a little bit, you know, growing up. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing
0: up? Yeah, life for me was, uh, was very interesting. So as you mentioned, I, I was born in Israel, but I actually grew up in Kenya, in Africa, um, we moved there when I was four years old and I went to the same school all the way from kindergarten to twelfth grade. I went to the International School of Kenya, which was an American based school. And uh that to me was normal growing up in Kenya because people keep asking me, What was it like growing up in Kenya? I said, I don't know. I never grew up anywhere else, so I didn't know what to compare it to. But uh yeah, I was there all through all through school and then I went to to college in uh in Pennsylvania which was uh, a a small difference.
1: A small difference, but, uh, I mean, talking about difference too, mechanical engineering, which you never used. Why mechanical engineering out of all things?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, when I was was graduated when I was 17 and a half years old, I didn't know what I wanted to be in life. Uh, My dad, um, he had a degree in mechanical engineering, He worked as a civil engineer. He actually never worked as a mechanical engineer. But uh, I thought, you know what? I like math. I like physics. Um, That's something I I should probably do. I didn't know what what I wanted to do. Um, But the the interesting thing about engineering is that it actually, because midway through the the degree, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to stop this. I'm going to change to a different degree. And I remember my parents saying, no, 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 you're going to finish. You're going to get your engineering degree and then figure out what you want to do in life. But the interesting thing about mechanical engineering, any engineering in general, is that it teaches you how to problem solve. Hey, there's a problem. How do we how do we go about and solve it? And so, uh, at the time, I, I didn't I didn't enjoy it, but I'm happy I I got to uh, finish my degree in in engineering.
1: So investment banking, you know, sounds like it was you know the the way to go for you. Uh, and I guess you know from investment banking to and and seeing you know all these companies companies that were doing well, companies that were doing not so well. Were there any patterns or any exciting things that you saw about the world of business?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, anybody who's looking to get into the world of business, I strongly recommend if you can uh, do do a few years of investment banking. Um, you're, you're probably, you may not enjoy it so much. The first few years as an analyst where you're staying up till 3 and 4 a.m. creating books. Sometimes people actually never look at those books. I only found that years later when I actually met with the investment banks. Um, it's funny, whenever I meet with investment banks right now, I make sure we go through the entire deck and I tell them, please thank, you. thank the analyst who is working on this, because I used to be that analyst who was up before four am working on those books. But uh, investment banking is very interesting because it actually teaches you how to understand businesses, uh, whether it's reading it through financial statements or understanding their strategy. Um, and so I, I thought it was a great, uh, segue into the business world. Uh, to be honest, I, I felt, um, like I always wanted to start my own business and I always had ants in my pants saying like, okay, I want to go do something. Um, and it was always like, okay, is it going to be now? Maybe I'll learn a little bit more. Maybe I'll learn a little bit more. But, uh, in hindsight, I'm happy. I, I did those, those few years in investment banking.
1: And obviously, you know, this was right around the time where you kind of like wanted to get a little bit of a taste of uh, doing something, you know, something of your own. So what what, what was that idea and, the, and how obviously it didn't unfold the way that you had hoped for, but I'm sure as the saying goes, you either succeed or you learn.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I started a company in 2007 called Groupster, and that was uh, Group Discounts. This is before Groupon had taken off. And I met with a bunch of VCs because obviously I had to raise money for it. And they told me that this has got this. They, they're like, you seem like a smart guy, but this has to be the dumbest idea I've ever heard. This isn't good. This isn't scalable. Um, what are you going to go business to business? And why doesn't I heard? Why doesn't Google do it? Why doesn't eBay do it? Uh, there was no Amazon at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't as big as it was, but I'm sure if it was, they would have told me that Amazon is going to go do it. And, uh, there's no technology advantage here. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. There's no technology. There's execution. I think I can out execute. But long story short, um, I used all my investment banking bonuses to bootstrap the business, but unfortunately it never, it never really took off. But again, that was a good, uh, I view that as a good learning lesson of, of how to think about business, how to think about unit economics. Our unit economics were actually broken at the time. And so in hindsight, I was like, oh, man, that was was, was poor execution. Unit economics didn't work. Of course, the business wasn't going to work.
1: I mean, it didn't work, but uh, you definitely wanted to keep going on the venture side of things. You know, you even joined their uh, venture capital firm. So how was that uh, transition into VC?
0: Yeah. So I joined uh, Norris Venture Partners. Uh, I was very fortunate to join Nor- Norris Venture Partners as they were opening up an office in Israel. They are making a lot of investments in Israel, and then they decided that, hey, it's time for us to actually have uh, feet on the ground in Israel. Now, in Israel, um, at the time, it was startup nation, uh, a lot of ideas mostly technology, high high technology businesses. They weren't really focused on scaling businesses. It was mostly, hey, let's try to sell the technology. We were mostly looking at investing in B2B businesses, businesses with strong technology, strong IP. And I was more interested in consumer. And at the time, Israel did not have a strong presence in consumer uh, deals. And so the team, after... I was there for quite a while. From 2009 to uh, 2012, they said, hey, if you're interested in consumer, um, why don't you come to move to the U.S. and join our consumer-focused team? Uh, they have a team just focused on consumer deals. And uh, I told my wife, what do you think? She said, good, good news. The bags are already packed. Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can go uh, as soon as we're ready. And so end of 2012, we moved to, we moved to Palo Alto. Uh, and I, I joined the, the group that just focused on consumer deals. And for me, that was, that was a good learning, um, to really understand, Hey, how, how are these businesses thinking about, uh, customer acquisition? How are they thinking about unit economics? How are they scaling? Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, 2013, 14, 15, those were the days of scale, scale as much as you can and who cares about the unit economics and I always thought to myself I was like okay great we're going to keep scaling and scaling and scaling but what what happens if we run out of money or what happens if new investors don't want to invest then what happens and so that was always like an aha moment for me that um hey these unit economics are not actually working and uh and that's something that uh when, when I start my business that's something that I'm going to do now it it is important to mention that um I've always had this startup bug in me where I've always said hey I want to do I want to do something of my own and I think for for the other entrepreneurs that are out there this is a this is obviously a positive and a negative because you're never as an entrepreneur you're never satisfied with uh not doing something of your own and at the same time The negative part of all this is it's hard. Now,
1: being there with Norwest, I mean, you were there for close to seven years. Uh, What were the three biggest things that you got about the ingredients of why companies would be incredibly successful or perhaps the ones that would fail?
0: Um, So I'll I'll give you the biggest one. Uh, And to me, it's, it's around the entrepreneurs themselves, the ones that are dreamers. Um, and you know as entrepreneurs it's always is a glass half full or half empty? The ones that are successful that 's not even a question. The glass is not only half full it's overflowing, and you, Mr investor, who doesn't realize that you're the one who can't see but for me, as the entrepreneur, the glass is so overflowing, of course it's going to be successful and uh the entrepreneurs that i I thought were were the i mean were able to get their businesses to be. Big successes were the ones that, hey, it didn't matter what happened, environment was up, environment was down, roadblocks, they would go around them, through them, wh- whatever it is, they, they were just able to, to be successful. The, the other thing is um, I realized around product market fit. Sometimes people have an idea and it may be that timing is too early. And you're essentially just running an uphill battle. Um, We'll we'll talk about residents in a second. But for us, um, when we started selling uh, the mattresses, we essentially hit product market fit day one. It was just people were buying it and there was demand in the market and everything was working well. And so we didn't feel like we were running an uphill battle trying to to force something on somebody, it w- it was already there. And again, sure. I, I, I tell people, hey, um, my, my opinion is try to find product market fit that already exists instead of trying to, to create something that you think people need, but they don't think that they need.
1: Yeah. No, I hear you on that. Now, what was that moment where you realize, I think it's my time to take a step
0: at it again? Um, you know, you're always, you're always looking for, for the right partners. Um, and for me, it was, um, it was at a Norwest sponsored event. It, um, and I met my current, uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd known Eric, uh, for a while, but it was at that event when I was like, Hey Eric, how are you doing? What's new? And he was like, Oh yeah, I'm leaving, um, my current company right now. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I don't know. And I was like, Hey, Let's do something together. Now now is the time. Um, And so, again, I think think to be successful, there's a lot of luck that needs to happen. And for me, the luck was finding um, a partner like Eric in that we just get along so, so well. And, uh, you know, the timing kind of worked out that uh, I was looking for an opportunity. And uh, that opportunity kind of came in that he was just leaving his job.
1: So, what happened next?
0: So we we talk about, uh, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Okay, we say we agree. We're going to start a business together. What is it that we're going to do? Um, so what what space do we like? Uh, so we both like the the commerce space. Why? Because people are always going to buy. Um, okay, so we like the commerce space, e-commerce specifically. Um, it's kind of growing. What categories, and so we really kind of turned this into a consulting project, as opposed to um, I know some people start businesses based off of their passion. For us, this is like, hey, what's what's out there? What what should we be doing? So we were looking at um, a few different a few different categories. But one of the one of the things specifically that we looked at was we wanted uh, the business to be profitable on first purchase, um, and so the unit unit economics had to make sense um for the business to be profitable on first purchase. And so that means that you have to have a high average order value because your customer acquisition has to be high enough on that first purchase. And so we were looking at a few different categories and then we kind of landed on the uh on the mattress category. Uh the truth is is that first I kind of like the pillow space um because I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, with the My Pillow guy um and i was like i've seen his products that's all marketing and i was like i think we could beat that guy and so i reached out to this um to this this gentleman who was importing uh pillows and mattresses at the time from china you can't you can't import mattresses from china anymore but at the time uh he was doing it um and i reached out to him and i said hey we're we're interested in in um in the pillows and he goes, why aren't you interested in the pillows? I have such a great mattress for you. And the unit economics make more sense. And essentially, he convinced me. So I told Eric, hey, um, so I think we're going to be selling mattresses. <laughs> and that's uh, that's essentially kind of how, how we landed on the mattresses. Everything about it made sense. It was a growing category. There were a lot of players in the space at the time. I think when we started, there people said that there's something like a 100 um, D2C players in the mattress category. And we said, that's great. That means that there's product market fit. Uh, people want it. And so now it's up to execution. And, uh, and we feel comfortable uh, competing around execution. Hey, guys.
1: So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle, so again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So, with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So for the people listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Resident? How do you guys make money there?
0: Uh, so Resident, we are a direct-to-consumer um, mattress and bedding-related uh, holding company. We have a number of brands. Our largest is Nectar and DreamCloud. And then we have other brands addressing different niches in the market. We have Awar, which is in the organic uh, space. We have um sienna which is slightly in the low end we recently launched a luxury uh mattress called clover lane and essentially we're selling um in the we're selling to the mass market um slightly less than uh premium prices but mass market uh mastige call it um products
1: so for this you guys have raised quite a bit of money too how much money have you guys raised to date?
0: Um, So we we don't really share uh, the amount of money that we raised, but I can talk a little bit about our our funding uh, rounds. We initially bootstrapped the business. um, And the interesting thing that we did around our business was negative working capital. Um, And for those who who don't know what negative working capital means, is that essentially you get somebody else to finance your growth. And so we were able to find... um, uh, when, when you start spending enough with uh, with Google and Facebook, um, they'll give you terms. They'll give you 30-day terms. So you're spending marketing dollars today. The customers are paying you today. And then you're paying Google and Facebook uh, in 30 days. So you get terms from there. Then we we're able to get terms from um, our suppliers. And they said, okay, uh, we'll send. Uh, so we in the beginning, when we started the business, we actually did not hold any inventory. All our suppliers held our inventory and they'd uh, drop ship from us and then um, they would give us terms as well in the beginning it was like maybe 10 days 15 days but still as, as you're scaling the business year you're doing well. problem with negative working capital is that if you're scaling everything everything works well. The problem is if you're not if you're not scaling and you're not profitable that's where where things uh, that's that's where you have problems. So, in so we we launched a business end of 2016. In 2018, we did our first, uh, our first funding round, and that was from friends and families, and some more friends of theirs, and some of their family members. And it was a big, big, uh, it was a ten and a half million dollar round, uh, but it was with a lot of, a lot of different investors, um, anywhere from, Millions of dollars family offices to uh friends writing checks for tens of thousands of dollars twenty five fifty thousand dollars that's amazing
1: I was just going to say there too that uh, I mean obviously I know that you are not uh, not sharing this you know obviously it's been reported by crunchbase, I think it's like about hundred and sixty nine million but again, I don't want you to confirm or anything that's at least what's out there, but the question here is. As part of the business, I mean, when you go into the venture, you know, mode like this, like you were going, you know, you're always going to go and push for growth. I think that things have changed quite a bit in that regard. You know, nowadays with the macro environment, you know, where it's more like profitability versus growth. It, and before, you know, it was like growth above everything else. Now, one thing that is very interesting is that you guys anticipated that early in 2019. And. I don't know what triggered that, but you ended up pushing for profitability at that point, you know, against the current, which was growth above everything else at that point. So what push, you know, for that to happen? And, and then also, how was that transition into really making sure that you were able to get the company profitable?
0: Yeah. So, so you, you bring up an excellent uh, point in that, you know, for the venture community, it's always about growth and don't worry, we'll figure out profitability later but when you stop when you stop for a second you say okay what if what if we're not a venture um a venture company what if we were the the store um the corner store right so think about this would anybody ever invest in the corner store if it was losing money no chance whatsoever um and so for us it was kind of like this mindset wait a second we're a store just because we're selling online doesn't change doesn't change the fact that we're We're a retailer. And so for us to exist, we have to be profitable. A business cannot exist if it's not profitable Um, or call it a retailer cannot exist. And that was kind of the switch in our head. And so we said, hey, no matter what happens, we have to figure our um, unit economics out and make sure that we are profitable no matter what. And so... When you, when you think about unit economics, I mean, the way we think about it is around contribution margin. So you have your gross sales and then underneath that you have your returns, cancellations, maybe payment processing fees. Um, and that gives you your net sales. And then you have your COGS, including uh, the product costs themselves, the shipping, the fulfillment, all of that, all of those costs as well. And then you have your marketing. All those costs, together you have to be able to it has to be uh you have to be making money because otherwise why are you even selling one unit if after all these things you're not making any money and so for us it was hey no matter what happens this is something that we needed to do and so we uh, we're, we're very very sophisticated in our marketing i mean in our data analytics making sure that uh we understand attribution as much as as you can. I mean, attribution is kind of uh, a black hole. You're never fully going to understand exactly where the user came from. But we know um, we built uh, a pretty sophisticated platform to understand, hey, money that we're going to spend today because mattress yeah. is a considered purchase. Um, it takes time for the, for the customer to actually um, make the purchase but we understand money that we spend today, when are we going to realize it? And we feel feel confident in in that spend. And so once we figured out our unit economics, it was around, okay, let's make sure that our operating expenses are where they need to be to make sure that we are profitable. And so in 2019, as you mentioned, when we decided, hey, no matter what happens, we're gonna be profitable, We had to, we had to cut our operating expenses. And unfortunately, as part of that, uh, that means that meant that we, we did a, we did a riff, a reduction in force. Um, and again, if, if, if I were to go back in time, I would, I would have done it differently because, um, all those entrepreneurs, um, and executives who, who, who've had to do a reduction in force, it's always around, well, I can't cut anymore because if I, if I have to cut more, then it's really going to affect my business. And so the mistake that we made was unfortunately we had we we did it three times because the first time wasn't deep enough, second time wasn't deep enough, the third time wasn't deep enough. Uh, but the third time we kind of got to where we needed to go. And then when you think about employee morale, it's not pleasant to to for for those that are staying. Obviously, it's not pleasant to go through that three times. Be like, oh, am I next? Am I going to be the next one um, to be cut? And so, if we go back in time, we would have been like, "Okay, how deep can we go?" And then you go a little bit deeper, and that's probably where 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 you should go. But I mean, having spoken to, to different executives, it's always like, "Well, I can't cut these people because if I do, my whole business is going to go under." Uh, I, I would challenge uh, those executives to be like, really, really dig deep and see. Hey, if you need to make cuts. How deep can you
1: go? Hmm. Now, one thing that you guys say have been able to really manage well is employee retention. And I guess that, uh, you know, all of that, you know, getting also the investors on board. I mean, it all rallies around vision, right? Like the future that you're living into. So in that regard, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Ron, and you wake up in a world where the vision of resident is fully realized how does that world look like
0: so you mentioned uh two things right uh one employees um and vision right i mean as as founders as executives essentially you are um you've been granted the ability to affect somebody's life your, your employees for that matter um, and they are trusting you to um, all all the things that you told them when you're trying to convince them to join your company, you wanna make you wanna re- realize it for them. So the first things first is that they should be enjoying every day. Um, I mean I, I talk to our employees all the time and I say, Hey, if you're not if you don't feel like you're fulfilled, if you don't feel like you're happy, if being here is not what you imagined it to be, then life is short, right? You should you should go find uh Somewhere else, because that's that's the most important thing is for you to be fulfilled and say, and we're very fortunate in that uh, nobody nobody really leaves the company. We had only one uh, senior exec uh, leave out of out of his his own will, but everybody else has, has really stayed with the company. Or unfortunately, we've had to let some people go along the way, but it wasn't it wasn't their decision; it was our decision. Um, so so. In terms of the vision is to continue to be um, a place where people feel fulfilled people feel like hey they're really really able to to get what they wanted out of uh, out of their career um in terms of the business where would, where would I like to get business is you know I'm a competitive our team is full of competitors we want to be number one um we want to be number one in the in our mattress category we want to be number one in the entire home goods category. Um, that's, that's much call it longer vision, but, uh, I mean, that's kind of where, where we see the business going. Um, we want everybody in the country to, to be sleeping on our products. Uh, we want everybody to be using our, going into other categories in the home and really being, being that, uh, that number one player. And again it's it's you know it's ambitious goals, but uh, if we don't have ambitious goals then what, what are we doing here
1: That's right, that's right, so obviously now we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. so let's say I put you into a time machine, ran, and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment that you're right there you know at the v c firm at Norwest Northwest Venture Partners, and you are thinking about maybe it's time to do something of your own and you're able to sit right there in front of your younger self and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
0: Um, so there's never the right time. And this is because this is it's always, I was always like, you know, I have, um, I have three kids now. At the time when I launched, I had two kids. It was always, hey, do it, should I take this risk? but what if it doesn't work out um is now the right time and so i remember i spoke i spoke with my dad about this and he goes um if you're looking for an excuse not to start the business i can probably give you 2000 excuses not to start the business at the at the end of the day there's never the right time uh the markets are always going to be up they're always going to be down you can wait a few more years But if you really want to start a business, now is the right time today, right now, because starting a business, you have to actually start it. Um, and the best way to learn about how to, how to grow a business is to do it, do it yourself. I mean, you could read as many books as you like. You can talk to mentors and I advise, uh, different startups, but I'm not living it. They the entrepreneurs are living it and they're going to be making the mistakes. And that's the only real way to to learn, in my opinion, is to is to actually do. Um and so if I were to go back in time, I would have done it sooner.
1: That's amazing. So for the people that are listening, Ron, you know, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so?
0: Uh LinkedIn. LinkedIn is 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 definitely the best way. Um yeah, my LinkedIn, just look me up on LinkedIn, Ron Reske, R-A-N-R-E-S-K-E. And uh I, I'm responsive on LinkedIn. Um, and you know what? I actually made a lot of good connections on LinkedIn. And we started, we found our first uh manufacturing partner on LinkedIn, believe it or not, and we found uh some great employees through LinkedIn, and actually uh we found our uh our current CFO on LinkedIn. And so I think LinkedIn is is a fantastic platform and a fantastic resource. And uh guess what? A lot of people haven't responded to my uh messages on LinkedIn as well. But uh I think I think you have to put yourself out there and try and uh and who knows? You might you might get a good response from somebody and they might uh change your business. Absolutely. Well,
1: easy enough for all the people that are listening. Well, Rand, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.
0: Thank you so much. This is fun.
1: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember,